Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we want to give you thanks. We want to give you praise and adoration. We want to give you first place in our hearts. And we want to give you our attention right now, God. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. Lord, you said that, uh, that the carnal man, the, the fleshly man can't understand spiritual things. And we recognize even our need to slip into that, that thinking that we need your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts, quicken our minds to understand the Word of God, Lord, that it would really come to life as it is alive and active, and that it would, it would change us, God, that we wouldn't just uh, go through the motions of another Bible study, but that we would really find ourselves in a place right now to be moldable and, and usable and, and, and changeable as we come to the Word of God with expectant hearts knowing that you want to speak to us tonight in Genesis 14. Uh, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we left off uh, with Abraham settling into his calling, settling into the promised land. But as we said, he settled in, but he didn't settle down, right? God called him to walk throughout the land, to explore, because we grow in faith. In the country of faith, we grow more as sojourners than we do as settlers, right? We saw that cool picture. We also saw that contrasted with Lot, Abraham's nephew, who walked by sight rather than faith. And what happened to Lot was he drifted from his call. He ended up setting up his tents closer and closer to the cities of wickedness until, guess what? He found himself living in the midst of the wicked cities. Now, troubles arise for Saul, as we can expect, living in a city of wickedness. And he gets carried up. In fact, there's this geopolitical situation that arises in Sodom itself, and he finds himself in the middle of it, uh, and he is in need of a savior. He needs, he needs Abraham to come rescue him. And that's what we read about here in chapter 14. So I'm about to read to you guys all kinds of names that I'm going to struggle with. And they'll probably be like in one ear, out the other. This next section uh, is important narrative, but it doesn't read well as a narrative. So let me give you a synopsis of what we're about to read. Essentially, there are four powerful kings who basically rule over this, this entire region uh, all the way from where Babel was out west, and they rule over various kings. These four powerful kings are ruling, basically, what's interesting, over the, the, the now existing, uh, or rather the pre-existing kingdom that Nimrod built in Babel. Do you remember reading about that just a few weeks ago? How this man Nimrod built this empire known as Babel, and then God divided the tongues. He divided the languages. Well, this is the region where Nimrod ruled and reigned. These kings are over this region now. And there are five kings over which they rule, who it says in the 13th year they rebelled. So these other kings rebelled. These powerful kings said, we've had enough of this rebellion, and they went to go uh, squash it, put an end to it. And so what they do is they go conquer these other kings, among whom is the king of Sodom, and along with the captives taken is Lot. So I might not have done a much better job of clarifying than that than what we're about to read, but let's read it now. Let's check it out. Verse 1. In the days of uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Shedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, 
Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, what we see today. Twelve years they had served Shedalomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, uh, these kings uh, went to the border of the wilderness, and they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh. Uh, in case you didn't know where En-Mishpat is, it says Kadesh, so you know exactly where it is, which you do now, I'm sure, right? And defeated all the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. You're like, got it, Sean, check. Um, now, this might sound like an impertinent list of names, but really, this list, guys, is super valuable to an archaeologist. Archaeologists eat this stuff up. They eat these lists for breakfast. It's really weird. No, they need their fiber. They love these lists because it has na- specific names of kings ruling and reigning, and it has various cities, and it has somewhat of a, uh, a path which they can follow as they do digs. And archaeologists, as you know, follow the Bible in order to, to, to guide their digs over in the Middle East. And archaeologists believe to have found these villages in the wake of this conquest. And what they said about these villages was that they were all left in utter ruin. So like these kings were successful at coming and conquering this whole area and forcing them into submission, uh, carrying the captives away, taking away the goods. Uh, The archaeologist said these places were never rebuilt again. Uh, So this entourage, pretty big. They came in, it says, by the Dead Sea, which is where they defeated the five kings. If you know, if you can picture the map of Israel, the Dead Sea and where, where Abram would be right now is on the southern part. Uh, and they end up going all the way north to Dan, we'll read, which is on the northern tip of, of Israel. Verse 8. Then king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the, and the king of Bela went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Shedalomer, Tidal, um, and the other two kings. Uh, 4 verses 5. Now in the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits or tar pits. Uh, a lot of tar over there. And in the scriptures you read a lot about pitch, tar. The ark was covered in tar. And the, just interesting side note, Rockefeller, right, the American entrepreneur who got filthy rich early on in American history, uh, the story goes that he was a man who read his Bible and saw all the tar in the Middle East over there and was like, there's oil in them there hills. And so he went over there and made a... Made a uh, made a fortune off the oil, reading these passages. So there's all these tar pits over there, and it said that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So here's, here's Lot dwelling in the cities of wickedness, living in the world, and it should not surprise you that Lot ended up suffering with the world he attached himself to. He connects himself to the wicked cities. He marries into, figuratively, he was already married, but he binds himself, yokes himself up with these wicked cities, and he ends up suffering alongside them. And the Bible tells us that a, a companion of fools suffers harm. Who you yoke yourself up with, you will have consequences to who you hang out with, to who you end up identifying with. And I'll tell you right away, uh, if you want a really uplifting message, here's one for you. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 
So whether you are of a companion of fools or a companion of wise people, whether you're walking down the path of righteousness or the path of wickedness, Jesus said, regardless, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have troubles. But the question is, do you want to suffer? Do you want to experience tribulation for doing the wrong thing or for doing the right thing? Do you want to come across tribulations because you're in the wrong place or in the right place? Because you're in God's will or because you're actually going against the will of the Lord? That's really the question. Sometimes we think, well, I'm going to go the world's way because Jesus' way seems hard and the world's way seems easy. And sometimes the world, the people in the world have it a lot easier than you do trying to walk the Christian walk. But they are not without tribulation. Everyone experiences suffering. And here Lot is experiencing suffering specifically because he yoked himself up with the cities of wickedness. But whether it's the path of wickedness or the path of righteousness, both have difficulty but they lead to two different paths. So don't ask yourself so much what path is easier. Ask which one will lead to the right place in the end. Which group of people will lead me to the right place in the end? You'll experience drama. You'll experience difficulty regardless. The path of the world, though it may be easier at times, eventually leads to the ultimate tribulation, to eternal judgment. To to live in the world, apart from Christ, apart from the will of God, leads to having to deal with your own sin apart from a Savior. And it leads to the ultimate tribulation. But guess what? God loves us too much to allow us to coast right into hell. So He, le- he lets guys like Lot have difficulty in the world to open their eyes, to wake up, to take a, a census of where they're at and where they should be and where they're headed and with whom they're suffering with. Because the path of righteousness, though it is more difficult at times, I'll straight up tell you, it can be tough to follow Christ. It can be hard to obey Christ when you know He's leading you to do something difficult. But it's always worth it. Always, always. You might have a life of complete, utter suffering, struggling tooth and nail just to survive in Christ. And when you see the end result, you will not regret it. You won't. Because the path of righteousness leads to eternal life. It leads to a place where tribulation is totally and utterly done away with. Where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. Lot is an example of of a believer walking in the cities of wickedness and suffering for it. Whereas Abram was right where God wanted him to be. And because he was, he was in a position to help Lot. And that's what we'll see here. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre. Let's stop there. This is the first time the term Hebrew is actually used in the entire Bible. And it it came to uh, be known as those who dwell in tents were were called Hebrews. But really the term meant from a region beyond. So they were calling Abraham a Hebrew because he dwelt in a different region than what everybody else was familiar with. Abraham was known as a man who lived differently than everyone else. He was a man who lived not the popular way, like Lot. Lot couldn't have been called a Hebrew, though he was technically a descendant of who we'll see, a guy named Eber. He couldn't have been called that because he was dwelling in the cities with everybody, living like everybody else. But Abram lived differently. Uh, in fact, he's, it's likely a derivative from his great-great-great-great-great-granddad, Eber, who also perhaps had the same example during the days of Nimrod in the One World Order. 
Eber did not live in the region, therefore they called him Eber from a region beyond. So we see this picture of faith in Abraham that he was a man who lived differently. He was a man who was a sojourner as a Hebrew. This is what the term Hebrew should speak to you and to me, that though we are in this world, guys, we are not of this world. That people should be able to look at you and think this person does not live the same way as the rest of everyone else I see out there. There's something different about this individual. There's something about this individual that says they are pilgrims here, passing through. That's a huge example that we see in Abram. It's just the fact that as a Hebrew, he dwelt in tents. He didn't get too comfortable anywhere. In fact, it's been said that uh, when, when people go to the airport bathrooms, that nobody really considers redecorating in there. Like, I've never had the thought, like, man, I need to change the color scheme in here or something. This is not vibing. I've never even... The airport bathroom is very temporary. You get in, you get out, and you get ready to leave that place, right? That, and that's kind of the picture of life for the believer. We need to understand this isn't a place where we settle in and get comfy. We don't think to ourselves, this is where it's all at. I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket on this side of eternity because we understand there's so much more than this life, that we are headed somewhere, that we are on a trip, and what we do here will impact that trip. So we make this side of eternity count. We're like Hebrews. We're living outside of what the rest of the world is doing, settling in, investing in their retirement, not thinking about after death. But we're looking at the, the picture, the big picture. We're looking at eternity here. We are to follow the call, keeping our bags packed, knowing that the plane of eternity could be coming at any moment. I hope you realize that. You're not guaranteed your, your, the 30s decade, which is great. I'm 36. I'm enjoying my 30s. You're not guaranteed the 40s or 50s. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. So we must live with our bags packed like, like, like Abraham did as he as a, that picture of a Hebrew, people of faith. The Bible says that Abram, he looked for a city and a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for a nice comfy airport to station out in and, 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 and live there. Have you ever seen that movie Terminal with Tom Hanks where he's stuck in the airport? Like that's the picture of the world. They're like, they're thinking this is it. They're like shaving in the airport bathroom. And we're like, what are you doing? We're we're leaving here, man. We're not staying here. Abram looked for a city and kingdom whose builder and maker is God. And that's what we do. That's, what we, that's how we live as sojourners. So it goes on. It says he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel, and of, of Aner. Some cool names there if you're looking to name your babies. Uh, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, quite the entourage there, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Again, so they're pursuing this caravan of captives with 318 men who were born in his house. So Abram's entourage was huge, right? His herdsmen... There were so many herdsmen, he couldn't share land with Lot because they both had too many people. Their population was growing too much. But Abram, just one little picture showing us that Abram was wealthy. God was providing. And, and he, had, he was well protected as well. So they followed this conquest up to the north side of Israel. And what's really cool about this, guys, is um, 
they've discovered the main city gate of Dan uh, in Tel Dan. Now, a tell, just to give you some archaeological uh, information, a tell is a, basically a big hill of dirt, which underneath is uh, um, some kind of ancient ruins. Typically, back way in the ancient world, they would come in and they would build, and then the, the, the next um, ruler or civilization that would come in would build on top of that and build on top of that. And these, these hills would get covered in dirt over centuries of windstorms and everything to where now they're realizing pretty much every hill they dig on was some sort of um, archaeological site, basically a gold mine. And there's so many they have yet to dig in the Holy Land in Israel. But they dug in all around Tel Dan and they found all kinds of amazing things. And one of the things they found was this, this city gate, which dates to the time of Abraham. So when, if, you're, if you ever go there or even look it up online, it is the gate that Abraham likely walked through during this particular expedition right here. It's pretty amazing. And just along those lines, I, want, I just want to assure you of the validity of the scriptures, guys. Right now, when we live, we live on the other side of all kinds of criticism that the Bible has received and critics whose mouths have been shut. Now, we, the Bible still receives criticism, but I want to tell you, for centuries, there was, all, there was a lack of archaeological evidence for stories in the Bible. And so these, these scholars would make all of these arguments against Scripture from silence, which is always a bad idea, by the way. You should never say that's wrong or true or false because I can't find any evidence for it. That's called an argument from silence. And especially in the realm of archaeology, which who knows what percentage we've actually dug up, maybe even just 5%, 6%. They're making these statements that things like David was a, a myth. They were saying that for a long time, scholars were. David never existed, guess what, until they found David's palace with the inscription on it of King David. Pilate, was a, Pilate never existed. They must have made that character up. There was never a prefect in Judea named Pilate until they found the Pilate stone that says Pilate, prefect of Judea. They made the same claim about these very kings in this chapter until they discovered all these ancient cities with their names written down on them. So I, I, all this to say, guys, the Bible is trustworthy. Archaeology has proven the Bible. Time, the Bible is time-tested. You compare the Bible to other religious books, and they pale in comparison. These other, book, these other religious books that have these epic battles and these people groups, and they do archaeological digs, and they don't find anything. They don't find any evidence. Whereas today, archaeologists, like I said, use the Bible to guide their digs. When you read stories in the Bible, you go to the Middle East and you see these towns. You see these places that you read about. This book is trustworthy, guys. You can trust the book that we are studying right now. So Abraham and his entourage, they follow this caravan, caravan up north, and they plan their attack on these, these four powerful kings. And if you ask me at this point, the odds would be against them. If you look at the wake of what these kings have accomplished, it's like you've got 318 farmers, herdsmen, all right, Abram, good luck, man. Let's read how this goes. Verse 15, it says, And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions. And the women and the people, uh, the women and the people, after his return from the defeat of Shedelomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, 
that is the king's valley. So Abram comes in and God gives him victory. He actually defeats these kings with this ragtag group of herdsmen, which is a miracle. It is nothing short of a miracle. Now, I'm sure they were qualified. You had, to, you had to be somewhat good at defending your own land back then because it's not like you had the government to protect you or anything like that. You were your own defense force. But nevertheless, I would, I would, I would guess the odds were not in their advantage. And yet here they have this amazing victory over these four kings. When these other five kings couldn't, couldn't defeat them. And what this is, guys, is this is a foreshadowing. This is a, an, a beginning, an early example of what would happen from that time all the way until present. That though few in number, Israel sees victories in battles because God fights so often on their behalf. And I want you to know that God has promised to protect and preserve the nation of Israel because He has plans for them. They are in the end days prophecies. He still loves them, though many of them have forsaken Him. And we've seen this throughout history. I was blessed uh, to go to Israel in 2019. And I got to go to Tel Dan. I saw that gate, Abraham's gate and all that stuff. It's amazing. It just blows your mind when you're there. But my tour guide, he was a very uh, intelligent man. I really uh, uh, learned a lot from him. And he said something that was intriguing to me that I really liked. He said, you know what? The nation of Israel appreciates America's support. But he's like, to be honest, God doesn't need America to protect Israel. And God won't need America to protect Israel. And as you, if you look in the pages of Scripture, God protects Israel despite America's absence, really, in the end times. God has vowed to do it, and we see it. It's starting here. He's starting to fight on behalf of, of this, this promised people, this chosen people. Now, in this uh, next section, let me see here. Oh, yeah, one more thing I wanted to mention about that with regards to Abraham's example. So he had some conflict with Lot. <clears throat> they parted ways, but he still loved Lot. So much so, guys, that he pursued him. He was, he was willing to go so far and to sacrifice so much and to risk so much to rescue this man that he loved. This man, Lot was, was, you could say he was wayward. You could say he had made bad decisions. Abraham could have sat back and said, well, he made his bed, now he's going to lie in it. He did not do that. He cared for Lot. He loved Lot. And to me, the Lord just spoke to me like, how are you treating the wayward people in your life? The people who have walked away from God or the people who always seem to make these bad decisions? Do you care about them? Do you love them? Will you chase after them to let them know that I love them? And so I just, I just see that example of as Christians, we ought to be those who are helping those in need. When someone makes a stupid decision and gets drunk and, and, and does something they would regret and all their friends are shaming them, would you be the one friend to share the love of Christ with them, to encourage them? When someone makes a financial uh, mistake, would you be the one person who doesn't actually rub it in their face and maybe even buys them lunch to share the love of Christ with them? I see that example here in Abram. He's just faithful. He's, he, it didn't matter the cost. He was going to help his, his, his nephew because he had that love. Now we're about to enter into an interesting section with a mysterious character, and his name is Melchizedek. A lot of mystery around this guy, but it's, it's pretty awesome. Let's check it out. Verse 18. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So I love how like there is no introduction at all for this guy. But as you, the more you study scripture, when you see the significance of this man, you're like, it's just so weird that they just throw him in here like this. But here he is, and Melchizedek, he gets one word, one, one intro, the word and. <laughs> king of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, he blessed Abraham, and said, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So I want to point out to you a few things about Mel, uh, Melchizedek, and you'll start to pick up on, on who he is and what he symbolizes right away. But first off, he identifies his God as the same God as Abraham. So there were lots of gods back then, lots of idols. But Abraham served Yahweh, or at least that's our best guess as to what that was pronounced. We don't actually know if it was Yahweh, but the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, that was the God, specific God that Abraham served, the God of creation and the God who made his promise of salvation. That was Yahweh. Melchizedek comes along and says, I serve the same God as you. In fact, I'm, I am the priest of that God. And I'm a king to that God. So very significant. He identifies with the same God as Abraham. He is, his name means king of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem. Salem means peace. King of peace. Is this starting to sound like anybody to you? King, who else in the Bible is called king of righteousness and the prince of peace? Who else in the Bible brings bread and wine to celebrate? Jesus. We find in Melchizedek a picture of Jesus. Die.